Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read the whole chapter, so bear with me. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from, how do you say it? Shatayim. My wife is taking Hebrew, and I've always pronounced that awkwardly, and I hate it, so I try to skip it, but it's actually pronounced Shatayim. Thank the Lord. He's having mercy on me. From Shatayim, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of the harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. The king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken these two men and hidden them, and said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about that when it was time to shut the gate at dark, the two men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in the roof in order uh, in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to Jordan, to the fords. And soon, as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan of Shion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore... Please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household, and give me a pledge of truth. And spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, Our life for yours, if you do not tell us this business of ours. And it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that he will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she, she let them down by a rope through the window. She defenestrated them. <clears throat> it's a new word we learned in our house. It means to throw something out the window. It just struck me. I'm sorry. ADD. Okay. Uh, beginning again in verse 16. I apologize. She said to them, Go to the hill country, so that the pursuers will not happen to you, upon you, and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. 
Then afterward you may go on your way. The men said to her, We shall be free from this oath to which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down. And gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. She said, According to your words, so be it. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and came to the hill country, and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers had sought them all along the road, but had not found them. Then the two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they relayed, related to him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, Surely the Lord has given us the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. Let us pray. Father God, as we come before you and we continue our time of worship through the proclamation of your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Open our hearts, minds to see and hear and understand what the Holy Spirit would have for us today. Let us walk away from this place challenged and encouraged. It's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen.
pour Jesus into your world. It's not too late to stand up. It's not too late to live bigger. It's not too late to risk greater. To love stronger, fall harder, rise up better, run faster, and move forward in spite of your fears. As I send our kids out to their classes, I would love for you to open up to to James chapter 2 with me today. James chapter 2, verses 25 and 26. Two simple verses that are going to challenge us today to risk greater for the glory of God. If you've been with us since we kicked off this fall, back on September 10th, we celebrated our 700th Sunday. And in celebrating that, you may remember we started the sem- semester with a, a, a message. A message and a theme, and that theme was, burn the ships. Burn the ships with a challenge to move forward, to go all in, no retreat, no surrender. That led us into the book of James. We've now been in this book of James for six weeks. And this book is all based on a living and active faith. A living and active faith, one that perseveres, we've talked about, one that obeys, one that loves, one that acts, one that that sacrifices, all for the glory of God. We talked about it last week. We said it's a faith that creates, works, and in turn, a works that completes our faith. It takes faith to go all in. It takes faith to push the envelope. As Hudson Taylor, one of the first well-known missionaries to China said, he said, unless there's an element of risk that exploits our love for God, there is no need for faith. Unless there's an element of risk. Do we have that element of risk? Risk greater because true faith risks. True faith risks. And today we're going to look at an unlikely example in Scripture. A person that is mentioned here in James as well as in that what we call the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Last week we talked about Abraham, who's also mentioned in James, and also mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. We looked at how he was called to follow God in Genesis chapter 15, and some 30 years later, but only seven chapters, Genesis 22, that faith is put to the test when God asks him to sacrifice the one thing that means most to him in all of his life, his son Isaac. He said, faith sacrifices. Faith takes that step in acting. It lays down what is most important at the feet of God. Faith creates works. Works completes faith. Today we're going to look at that same truth, but from an entirely different perspective. The exact opposite side of the spectrum. In a less known story, the one that Pastor Bruce read, I thought he was actually going to reread it when he said, let me begin again. I'm like, hmm. I don't know if we have enough time for that to begin again. But it was in Joshua chapter 2. And the woman, her name is Rahab. And as Pastor Bruce read Joshua chapter 2, and and you'll see the end result of that in Joshua chapter 6, which we'll touch on here a little bit as well, there are two verses that we have in James because of it. The two verses that we'll be looking at today, verses 25 and 26. See, back in Joshua chapter 2, just to do a quick summary of what Pastor Bruce read, the people of God were ready to take the promised land for the glory of God. And the first major city they were going to run into with these monster walls was Jericho. As Pastor Bruce read, Joshua sent some spies into the land to scout things out. When the two spies go in, they stay at the house of a prostitute. 
Her name is Rahab. One thing you need to know is that a woman in that profession also served as a bit of an innkeeper in case thoughts jumped into your mind with the two spies. So she was an innkeeper of sorts. So it wasn't uncommon for people to be in and out of her house, coming and going as they went. So the spies stayed there and she ends up protecting them from death. And in return, when the people of God return in Joshua 6 to tear down the walls, or actually God tears down the walls of uh, Jericho, They protected her and her family from death. So I guess the question we have to ask first is this. Why Rahab? Why Rahab? Why does James talk about Abraham in one verse and Rahab in the next? See, you have to think this. Abraham was the patriarch of the Jewish people. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute in the middle of a Gentile pagan land. On the other hand... Abraham was a friend of God. We even saw that in the last, last verses we saw. Rahab was a Canaanite, which is an enemy of God, a people that God was going to destroy. Abraham was a great leader, the top of the social order. Rahab, a less than common woman, who was looked down upon and really at the bottom of the barrel when it came to the social order. I mean, think about this. Even as James writes it, if you see there in your passage in verse 25 you will see he tags the word prostitute. The prostitute. Rahab the prostitute. He throws that in there. As Pastor Bruce read, it said the harlot. You know, if you grew up in the King James, you can stick with that one too. That's fine. Either way, a woman of ill repute. If she's this great woman of faith that's found in James, it's found in Hebrews 11, why tag her? As a matter of fact, if you look in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, her name there is found among these great Men And actually, she's only one of two women that's mentioned in this entire thing with Sarah and her. But you have Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph all mentioned. But when they mention her, you know what they also tag in there? The prostitute. Why did they leave it in there? What is the point that James is trying to make? What is the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make? And this is simply what I think it is. I think they're both trying to say that Jesus saves. Plain and simple. Jesus saves. He saves the rich and the elite, and he saves the poor and the social outcasts. There is nobody that is too good to be saved, and there is nobody too far from God that is too far away to be saved. We're all in need of salvation. We are all sinners who all stand in opposition to God under his judgment and under his wrath until the blood of the Son washes us clean and we're clothed in his righteousness. I think those two words, the prostitute or the harlot, are a reminder that God's grace knows no bounds. It knows no bounds. He doesn't care about what you've done. He doesn't care about how far you've strayed. He only cares that you come to repentance through His Son and receive salvation. That's all He cares about. God's grace is the great equalizer. That's why you can have the patriarch of the entire Jewish people side by side with a Gentile converted prostitute. That's how you can see it. In verse 25, James actually asked the question. He said, in the same way, referring back to Abraham, bringing him together, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the message, or sorry, receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? Remember, James is still tagging this back to faith creates works, works completes faith. This line of thinking that he's taking is God. He's saying, what we can do 
all we do, God can use us if we're willing to sacrifice all for Him and really risk it all for Him. But the question again is, is why does James talk about Rahab here? Well, I see three reasons. Number one is this. Rahab was a recipient of God's amazing grace. There's a book came out a couple years ago called Scandalous Grace by Preston Sprinkle. And it was all about the shocking grace of God and how it bleeds into every page, every character, and every action of the Old Testament. A lot of times when we look at the Old Testament, we think of God's judgment. We, we miss God's grace. And this book pointed it out. It pointed out the amazing grace that was about there, how God loves to redeem the unredeemable. Rahab falls into that category, but guess who else does? Me and you. We fall into that, and God loves that, and this is an amazing picture of that grace when we look at Rahab. We know. We know the, the little story about Rahab, but who knows her backstory? Who knows how she ended up in the position that she did? In the profession that she did? Did she grow up in a good relationship with her parents? Was mom or dad absent? Was there a rebellion that took place in there that they didn't spend enough time with her, so therefore she pushed them away? How did they raise her? You know, what, what choices did she make that led her down this path to this ultimate end of selling herself? What was it that did that? Well, here's the crazy thing. None of it really matters because of two words that we've talked about lots of times. You know what they are? But God. But God, in all of his wisdom, he knew who she was. He knew where she lived. He knew the profession that she was in. He knew that the house that she lived in was on that wall, that people were going to be coming and going and staying there all the time. And he knew that she would have faith in the one living God, a faith in action that would be used to save the spies, that would lead her family and be brought into the family of God. He knew that. He knew this backstory that was going to lead to the fact that she was going to marry a guy named Salmon. And as a matter of fact, tradition says that was one of the two spies that went to the house. And they would have a kid named Boaz. And in the process, that Boaz would eventually marry a girl named Ruth. Ruth, by the way, was a Moabite woman who was also an enemy of God. So the fact that she's brought into the story here is amazing in itself. But here's what we need to see next. Boaz and Ruth had a son named Obed. Obed had a boy named Jesse. Jesse had a boy named David, who ended up being King David, who would eventually, down the line have a boy in his lineage named Joseph who would marry a lady named Mary who is the mother of Jesus. You want some cool stuff? You want to get crying? It's to see how God uses the unredeemed, brings them into redemption, and uses them for his glory to bring his son to a world that's in desperate need. He's doing that with each and every one of us as well. It's all in Matthew chapter 1, by the way, if you think I'm just making up this and just calling out names. It's all the genealogy. Matthew was writing to Jews who were very much into genealogy, and he said, this is how it all goes down. This is how Jesus comes from the line of David, who came from all the way back. It's amazing to see this. 
You see these women who were enemies of God, brought into the family of God by God's grace and used for the glory of God in more ways than one. God reached down into the least likely candidates of this world and he poured out his mercy and he poured out his grace and that is why grace is so amazing. Scandalously shocking if you want to go with Preston Sprinkle's words. On Thursday night, we gathered here for our third Thursday prayer and in it, we decided we were going to pray through Psalm 103. If you haven't ever read Psalm 103, I would challenge you to do so. Because in the middle of it, it says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. He has poured out His righteousness on me. He has redeemed me from the pit. He is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. When I read that that night, I think it even hit me more, even though I'd already kind of prepared for it. But all I could think about was praise God. Praise God that He reached down past my disgusting sinfulness and brought me into His family to be used for His glory. And praise God He did the same thing for you. How? By sacrificing His one and only Son to take the wrath of Him that deserved, that we deserved. It was, it was supposed to be upon us. And then He clothed us again in His righteousness, declaring us righteous. If you were here last week, we talked about the definition of justification, which is to be declared righteous. That's the first reason why James talks about Rahab. Here's the second reason, Joshua 2, 11. Rahab says this, When we heard this, we lost heart, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. The second reason is that Rahab feared and revered the Lord. Just reading this one verse says a lot about Rahab. It also raises a lot of questions about us personally. Rahab was basing everything on what? What she had heard. What she had heard. She had heard about the stories of God saving his people from Egypt. She had heard about the walking across dry ground when they came to the Red Sea. She had heard about the giving of the victory over the Amorites. But even these little bits that she heard, she just didn't leave it there. She believed. She knew that Yahweh is God. He is the God in heaven. He is the God on earth. She knew he was sovereign over all things. She knew that she was accountable to him. She knew judgment was coming on her. She knew that judgment was coming on her city. And she feared God and she revered him. She took a risk. She took a risk because she put her entire life on the line for the people of God. Now, most of you probably know that I am a sports fan. Johnny mentioned it when he was up front. But there's something about sports that I love and hate at the same time. I'm a Diamondbacks fan. I was watching the game last night in total disgust. And the reason why, and I'll tell you this, and, and you may, I may completely lose you if you're not a baseball fan, but Corbin Carroll is the second highest base stealer in the National League all year long. I think actually in all of baseball. And yet he was standing on first doing this. Mike, make that kid run. He's got the wheels, take the risk. The coach gets a little bit cautious because he doesn't want to give up an out. But I'm like, if you make him run, you take that risk and there is a probability of loss. That's what risk is actually defined as. A probability of loss. You may not win it, but if you do, good things are going to happen. You saw it if you watched the game, first inning, 
Phillies had a double steal. They scored a run on it because they did it. In it, that's kind of the way it works. If you're a football fan, it's when you go for it on fourth and one on your side of the 50. It, all of these kind of things, they involve risk. It's putting it all out there. If you get it, awesome. If you don't, you are the one they're going to talk about on the radio tomorrow. I mean, that, that is the reality of it. But this, this risk that we see that, that Rahab is taking is so much greater because she is putting it all on the line. Everything to the middle of the table. Her faith was in action. Her faith was literally risking. She was willing to take a radical step of obedience because she believed God. And she believed in God. When you fear Him, when you revere Him, when you believe in Him, you will risk it all for Him. And really, that's the third reason I think that James mentions her here. And Hebrews mentions her as well, because she risked it all for the glory of God. You know what would have happened to her if the king would have discovered her? Discovered that she was lying? She was committing literal high treason. She was selling out all of her people for the enemy that was coming. Her life was literally on the line. Her actions led us to reading about her today. You have to remember James is talking about her faith. Hebrews put her in the hall of faith, but it, it wasn't because she did religious rituals and activities. It wasn't because she went through the motions. It's because she literally went all in. That burned the ships. She put everything to the center of the table. And you know what was included in that everything? Her family, her friends, everything she'd ever known about Jericho. We don't know how long she'd lived there, but everything was in the middle of the table. All of it is now gone. Her family could have cut her off, or even worse, she could have been gambling with her family's lives. They could have said, hey, because you did this, we're also going to kill everybody else you know. It's entirely possible, right there on the spot, could have executed it all. But she was willing to take the risk. Also, the people of God might take the city of Jericho for the glory of God. According to James, she was considered righteous for what she did. This in and of itself is a challenge to each and every one of us. Are we willing to do that with our lives? Are we willing to risk it all? Are we willing to take risks in obedience to the word of God because you fear and revere the sovereign Lord of God who has saved you by his amazing grace? Remember, she had just heard it. You've experienced it. What is driving us to do that great thing? See, thousands of years after Abraham took the took his son to the mountain to sacrifice him, thousands of years after Rahab had put her life on the line for the spies, my question is you. Are you willing and ready to risk it all for the glory of God? Are you? Will we go against the culture that is all around us trying to make us fit in? And that culture is even what we might call a progressive Christian culture. And I threw up those air quotes because I'm not sure if the word Christian's tagged to that progressive. But they're trying to make us fit in. Will we stand against that? Will we take that next step? Will we take that risk? See, as we've been in James for the last six weeks, this has been the challenge. This is what he's trying to say. Where have you put your faith? In what? In whom? Prove it. Where are you investing your time? Where are you investing your talents? Where are you investing your treasure? Where are you investing your testimony? Do you understand how important those investments are in not only growing your faith, because those faith create works and that works completes your faith, but also those 
uh, that are around you, those who are in your family, those who are in this church, those who are, are in your workplace. How are you investing and what type of intentionality are you tagging to it? Well, that challenge really brings us to the last verse of James chapter 2. And the last verse we're looking at today, it points out the same thing that many of the other verses throughout this chapter have said, and that's this. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. James is bringing it all together and so should we. And in it, he's giving us three realities of what it means to be righteous before God. That, that justification. How are we justified according to James? Well, the first thing is this. Christ is the basis for our justification. Christ is the basis. He is the foundation. How can you and I as sinners be declared righteous before God? That is a question you have to ask yourself You have to have that discussion because we can't get rid of our sin. Both Paul and James make it clear that we stand or we can't stand on our own righteousness. Instead, they say there's nothing that we can do. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Which means we need someone else who is righteous to be righteousness for us. You know what that is? That is the gospel. That is the gospel. That's what it's all about. Jesus stepping down from heaven, putting on flesh in the form of a baby, the incarnation that we'll talk about in just a couple of weeks. We're 63 days from Christmas, y'all. I know, just wrap your head around that. We're going to be diving into that and looking at that, but as you do, you have to understand, he didn't just come as a baby, but he lived the perfect, spotless, righteous life in our place. And then he died. He died the death that we deserve. 2 Corinthians 5.21 actually says these words. He, God, made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There was a purpose behind it all, that we might become the righteousness of God. The work of Christ is the foundation. It is the basis for our justification. If anyone asks you, how do you know that you have been made right that you've been declared righteous, that you've been justified before God, your answer is Jesus Christ. If it's anything else, if you start to even think, well, it's because I have done blank, you have missed the point of the gospel. You've missed it. The question is, though, is how is the work of Christ applied to your life? Is it automatic? Is it something that we're born into? If you're born into the right Christian family, if you're born in Alabama, if, you're, you know, if that kind of thing happens, or is there something that you have to do? Well, that leads to the second reality. The second is this. Not only is G- Jesus the basis for our justification, faith is the means of our justification. It is the way, it is the method that we are justified. But faith is an anti-work. Faith is trust. Faith is surrender. It's the realization that you can't do anything on your own but trust what's already been done for you. That's what we have to do. And and through faith, you are united with Jesus Christ and being clothed and credited with His righteousness. But as James repeatedly says, this faith is more than just head knowledge. It's more than just some intellectual assent. It's more than believing, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, because guess what? The demons believe that too, but they don't have faith. Faith, according to Scripture, means turning from yourself and trusting in Jesus as your Savior. It means turning from your sin 
and getting off your own personal throne and allowing him to be the Lord of your life. It's the moment that God opens your eyes to see your need for a savior. I've used this illustration lots of times, but it's like somebody out for a swim in the middle of the ocean. You can't throw them a life preserver if they just think they're out for a swim. It's when they realize they're drowning that they're going to need that life preserver. Do we realize we are drowning in our own sin? Do we realize we're living in a world that is drowning in their own sin and there's only one Savior? There's only one method to be saved, and that is Jesus Christ. And God provides that moment to see His provision through the Son and confess our need for a Savior. And then we submit our lives to Him. Paul says it this way in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification happens in an instant, but faith is the way that we are justified and it changes everything else in our lives. That's the point of James's letter. It's the action playing out. So first we have that Jesus is the basis. Faith is the means. Third is works is the evidence. Works is the evidence of our justification. It's that whole prove it idea. Faith bears fruit. Does that mean our works are the basis of our justification? No. It means point one. Jesus is the basis of our salvation. Our works are fueled by the grace of God for the glory of God. And they are the evidence we have been justified. Abraham believed God. You know what the works demonstrated? He was willing to sacrifice all for him. Rahab believed God. What the works demonstrated was she was willing to risk it all for him. In these two examples, James gives us they showed their faith by what they did. As we finish this final chapter, I have two reminders that I would like to lay out for you before you go on your way. And it kind of ties in these three realities. The first one is this. These three realities are only possible by the grace of God. The basis, the means, and the evidence, they're all because of the grace of God. They're only possible because of that. Grace, it draws us to faith. God's grace draws us to faith while we're dead in our sins, but after this, our obedience is fueled by that same grace. Both our faith and our works are made possible by God. All of it is by grace. Maybe this is a good example. I told you that that, uh, Christmas is 63 days away, seven weeks from tomorrow. Parents, I want you to imagine, and it might not be even imagining you have done this plenty of times, but giving money to your kids so they can buy you a Christmas present. They give you the present, but the question is, did they really? Did they really? And the answer is, on one hand, it came from you because you paid for it. But on the other hand, it was an expression of their love for you to give it back to you. That is how this idea of grace works. The illustration is not perfect, but anything we bring to God as an offering that is pleasing to Him is an overflow out of the grace He's already given to us. I think it's one of the reasons why James chooses, of all people, Rahab as an example of the faith about the grace of God that is alive in the risk-taking obedience of a woman who's willing to lay it all on the line. By grace, we are saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. Second thing is, is this. These three realities are ultimately a part of the final judgment before God. If you are with us last week, we talked about initial justification and final justification, that two sides of the coin thing. The judgment I mentioned here is when we stand before God in heaven. We're talking about final justification, a time when 
your eternity will be declared by God openly and finally. So let me ask you some questions when it comes back to these three realities. What will be the basis? What will be the basis by which you enter into heaven and dwell in the presence of God for all eternity? Christ. The only way you can go to heaven is based on Christ. And what is the means? What is the way? What is the method by which you'll be declared right on that day for all of eternity? Faith. Faith. Faith that says, Father, I have nothing in me to stand on. I uh, truly and wholly trust on your righteousness for Christ to stand in my place. You open my eyes to your holiness and to my sin. You open my eyes to Christ as my Savior and my Lord. By grace you did this, and by faith is how I'm going to show it. In the background of your life on that final day, it's going to be evident whether such faith was actually in your life. What Paul says is true. He said, He, God, will repay each one according to his works in Romans 2.6. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. What will be the evidence of our faith? What will be the evidence? If there is no evidence, if there is no fruit on that last day, the only thing you have to lean on is that you signed some card or you walked some aisle or you prayed some prayer, or even did some religious religious uh, rituals and participation and do some things like that, my guess is this. It's going to be shown clearly that you've never really had any faith at all. And you're going to miss eternal life and be cast away into eternal death. Now, I've never considered myself a hellfire, brimstone, damnation type of preacher. But as a shepherd, as a pastor, I'm truly called to this. I don't want people to be deceived. I don't want people to be deceived. It breaks my heart when people die. People who have no fruit of faith in their Christ, in Christ or through Christ, but at the same time, the church community and their friends all just believe they're in heaven because, well, that we want to believe that. Why would you believe anything different? Who wants to believe anybody they loved went to hell? None of us want that, but yet we never share our faith. Just let that soak in for a second. To be clear, none of us knows the inner secrets of a person's heart, and we're not the final judge, but God's word is clear. Any claim to faith with no fruit is like a dead corpse. It's a statue. There's no life there. Instead, there is death in hell for all eternity. So I'm going to read this directly from my notes because I'm not going to be able to word it well enough. I did it better on paper. Therefore, if you have not truly believed in Jesus Christ for salvation, I urge you to do so today. Look to Christ crucified as the only basis which you can be declared righteous. By God's grace, admit your need for Christ to trust in Him. Do not give mere intellectual assent. Don't just head knowledge or perform some religious ritual. Lay yourself in faith on Christ. For when you do that, the God of the universe will look down on your sinful heart and save you. He will clothe you in the righteousness of Christ and you will have peace with God. And through such faith, Christ will come into your life and change it from the inside out for your good and for His glory. He will transform your life into the one that demonstrates His grace and love and mercy to the world around you. That is a faith that saves and that is the faith that works. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word and thank You for reminding us 
that you'll use anyone and that you will save anyone. We look at a person like Rahab and even in today's society that kind of glorifies the idea of prostitution. It's still a down and out profession. It's one where people are used and abused, but God, you still reached down and grabbed her out of that pit and redeemed her and used her for your good and your glory in all things. Even we still see today as we read about her. Didn't matter if it was Abraham or Rahab, you used them. God, we probably fall somewhere in between. Each and every person in here. My prayer today is that we hear what you've done, hear how you've used them, and we are willing to not only hear but believe and know that you are calling us to risk it all for your glory and your honor. We want you to have all the praise this morning, Lord. We pray in that holy name. Amen. I'm going to jump down here in the front, and I would love to talk to you. I would love to talk to you about risk. I would love to talk to you about sacrifice. I would love to talk to you about maybe what God is calling you to do because there are some things that are going to sound ridiculous. And there is going to be a possibility of loss. And there's a possibility your friends aren't going to want to hang out with you anymore. And there's a possibility your friends aren't going to want to hang out with you anymore. Guess what? That's where Rahab was at. And we have to make that right decision and follow after God instead of after our own hearts. Because our own hearts are deceitfully and wicked to the very core without Jesus Christ in it. So follow Christ. I'll be down here to pray with you.